Welcome to Inspire and Innovate, a podcast for educators. We are educators and instructional coaches at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in beautiful Jackson, Mississippi. Our Inspire and Innovate movement seeks to make visible the expertise of teachers while also upping our game in conversation with other thought leaders. I'm Shay Egger and I work with early childhood and elementary school faculty to support the use of different teaching strategies and tools to foster real world learning experiences for students. I'm Toby and I teach fifth grade math I'm Julie Rust, and I work with middle and upper school faculty to explore the many ways we can cultivate learning experiences with youth to invite them into engagement with content, skills, and community. Y'all, teaching is hard, and it's never been harder than the past 11 months or so. That's why our first series is dedicated to investigating teaching in the time of COVID. Tim Fish is the Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. He has roots in the independent school community and a long history at McDonough School in Maryland, where he was the school's associate headmaster. Tim is the co-author of the book, Leadership and Technology at Independent Schools. He started his career as a fourth grade teacher and has served as a founder, board member, and consultant for a variety of education and technology-related schools, organizations, and companies. He is currently serving on the board of Viewpoint School, a K-12 school in Los Angeles. He also serves on the board of the Enrollment Management Association and the Folio Collaborative. In his role at NAIS, Tim is leading the Strategy Lab team in an effort to support strategic innovation. The team develops deep partnerships with member schools to co-create tools and frameworks that build capacity for the design and implementation of demand-side strategy and innovation. During our conversation with Tim, we enjoy taking a trip down memory lane into his days as a fourth grade teacher. We also discuss the difference in reactive and proactive innovation, the importance of reflection, and Tim shares with us his magnetic mountain imagery as a framework for innovation and growth that applies to classroom teachers. We hope you enjoy listening to the conversation with Tim Fish as much as we enjoyed having it. We are here with Tim Fish, and I know, Shay, I feel like we are with a superhero slash um, celebrity because, Tim, your name is mentioned by our head of school, Tom Shepard, I would say at approximately every meeting I'm ever in. Um, You are a big inspiration um, for our school leader and and for our school at large, and we're just so excited uh, to talk to you today. And, you know, we've heard a lot about um, some of your frameworks for innovation as well as for sort of school leadership, and we're eager to think with you today about how these frameworks can kind of dial down and trickle down into classrooms and what they mean for the classroom teacher. So thank you so much uh, for being part of, of this chat. Well, thank you so much to Julie and Shay. It's so nice to spend time with you today. I tell you, I have just been uh, watching the amazing work that you all are doing at St. Andrews from afar as well. And just think the world of Tom Shepard, think the world of what you all are doing. Want to thank you so much for your participation in the annual conference recently (laughs) and your outstanding session there and and all your support for NAIS. You guys are, are serving um, to, to really provide our schools with uh, uh, exemplars of what's possible in education. I just want to say thank you so much for everything you're doing. Oh, that is so thank nice. You. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, so so Tim, we are really interested in, in just your background in general, your bio, and, and what you want to share about your experiences that have driven you to be so interested in, in pushing the boundaries of sort of what education can be. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I started my career actually teaching fourth grade in Fairfax oh, County Public Schools in Virginia. Cool. I was a 22-year-old fourth grade teacher that I actually, more than you want to know, but I got my, um, my undergrad, I was certified to teach K through 12 in science. And so I did all my student teaching in high school, teaching science. And then I got hired in Fairfax and I ended up teaching fourth grade, but had never in my life taught a single lesson of math, reading, language arts, (laughs) history. I had never been around a fourth grade student. The youngest students I had worked with was was seventh grade. So I was thrown into a classroom with 32 students in 1990. Um, Five of them didn't speak any English at all. Four of them were profoundly dyslexic. Three of them were some of the most GT kids, if you will, that I've ever spent time working Mm. with. And I was a first year teacher and I'll never forget, they rolled a, 
I was in there in the summer. I was working. I was scared to death. And they rolled a um, filing cabinet one day into my classroom. Oh, and I, I was sitting in there and the, and the, and the awesome guy, um, Mr. Sam from the school rolls in a um, filing cabinet. And I said, Sam, like, what's that for? <laughs> it's like, it's for all your files. And I said, all right, well, you can put it over in the corner. And I went down to the school office and I grabbed a, a box of folders and I came back and I wrote on one of the folders, I wrote math. And I just opened up the third drawer and dropped it in. Oh. And I was like, you know, I got nothing. I have absolutely nothing. And wow. I had this amazing team of three other teachers that were super experienced that took care of me. Even two nights before the first open house, they came in at three o'clock and they were like, look, man, we're having an intervention. Like your room needs to be more decorated before open house. And so we got a bunch of pizzas and we sat there and we did all the bullet boards oh, and we hung great. stuff up. That's and amazing to have the team. Tim, so. I had the same intervention my first year teaching sixth grade. <laughs> I, they were like, Julie, your room is just not going to cut it. That is so funny. That's right, Julie. That's right. It's so crazy. <laughs> and so like, I remember what it's like to be that fourth grade teacher who just is like trying to figure it out. You know, I played, I'll never forget three, four weeks in, I went out and played football with the, with the kids mm -hmm. at recess, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh yeah, I'll be the quarterback and it'll be so cool. And the kids will think I'm awesome. And then I come back in later and like little Omar is not doing his work. And I'm like, Hey man, what's up? And he's like, you should have passed to me. Like, I don't know why you didn't pass. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> so never again. Could I like, could I do this? Like, you know, um, work where I was where I was just like trying to cross that line mm -hmm. between being a teacher wow. and being a friend and you know we learn these lessons when we're my other great lesson from my first year teaching I think was I had this belief that if I'm talking they must be learning oh, and so yeah. I was the more I talk the more they learn oh, gosh, which we all yeah. know to not be true right but it certainly felt like it was true when you're a first year teacher yeah. and uh so so many lessons but that's where I began I did that for a couple of years I then took my first summer, I took a little Mac LC computer home and I just was inspired by the power of what technology mm -hmm. could do pre-internet, but I was inspired by it. And I started a master's program in technology and worked with this phenomenal teacher who was at George Mason at the time, a guy named Chris Deedy, who's now at Harvard Graduate School of Ed. He's a real futurist. And I had the privilege of, Chris was my advisor and it's great privilege of working with him and doing some pretty cutting edge stuff for, for the early 90s in virtual reality and some other things. And um, and then I left the classroom in 94 and took a job where I was leading technology for nine schools. I was like the wow. tech director for nine schools in Fairfax. And then I did that, I blah, blah, blah. And then four years later, I ended up finding this uh, job as the technology director at a private school in Maryland. I'd never been, I never really spent much time in private schools. and. Uh, found McDonough School, a K through 12th grade school outside of Baltimore, and they needed a technology director. And it was a hard decision, actually, to leave public education. I mean, that was something that we could talk a lot about, but it was a really, really gut wrenching decision for me. And I ended up taking it, ended up doing the doing the job, and have been there ever since. And and then at McDonough, I just ended up doing other things. Um, eventually, that became associate headmaster, and I was overseeing a bunch of different aspects of the school and. Um, but overall, I just kind of, I'm just curious and I love thinking about learning and I got into tech because I was inspired by the power of what transformational learning could look like. And that's really what I've always been about. It really wasn't about the technology as much as it was about what can we do with kids. So yeah. that's super quick. And then five years ago, I joined the team at NAIS as the first chief innovation officer for NAIS. And I've been you know, just rolling up my sleeves and working with schools all around the country for the last five years and just having an amazing time of it. I mean, I'm so inspired by the work that schools are doing and I'm so grateful be, for being able to spend time with them. And hopefully I'm able to bring some stuff to people that can be helpful. So well, we that's a quick, quick, too long a story about my first year, but no, super I could, fun. I could listen all day to the stories, especially when you started out as a classroom teacher. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Those I could relate to so many of them myself. I mean, when you start out, you, you really are thrown to the wolves and even student teaching does not prepare you. And so thank you for sharing that part of your bio. And as two mamas of fourth grade boys, fourth grade boys we yeah. connected on many levels <laughs> yeah. with your fourth grade story. So. <laughs> <laughs> many visceral levels. Um, also, both of us 
Well, many of the parents, many of the parents, Julie thought I was one of the students. Oh I think. yes, I looked, I looked yes. really young same. when I was twenty. When we both same. started, same. Also, both you get from mis- public school. Yeah, you get mistaken a for a high school or, or middle school. When, but I mean, you are you're twenty two, you starting out a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's just so much to learn still. And so uh, you took me down memory lane with your stories. Oh man, yeah, we related <laughs> on a lot of levels. Well. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, this isn't on the list of questions, but I just have to ask because you you mentioned the title, um, which we, we share the word innovation in our titles as well. And we have found innovation, as you see innovate largely on our <laughs> broadcast screen as well. Yes. We have found the word innovation to be really, really helpful and also sometimes problematic and uh, weighted with a sometimes baggage that we uh, don't necessarily want it to be weighted with and uh, find a lot of times our jobs is reframing um, innovation uh, from meaning what some folks maybe think it means. So I would just love to hear how, in your title, how do you define innovation? That's a great, it's a great question. And one that I found also when I began, people were like, what is that? It it often people, I think, get sick of innovation mm-hmm. and the concept of it because it seems to many that it's chasing the bright and shiny. That's right. Um, That's right. And it's not really about substantive progress. And for me, innovation is fundamentally about the capacity to move forward, mm. right? And and I think that it's about a disposition. It's about the a way you see the world. It's about the way you approach problems. And so it's fundamentally grounded in a few key ideas. One of them is this idea of build, test, learn, right? This idea of just quickly iterate, um, to, to try things, to not be afraid to, to run deliberate experiments, right? And I think that's a key thing. I think too often when people innovate, it, they think it means just do new stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But really what it means is run very deliberate, well-designed experiments mm-hmm. and learn from those experiments and then do more, yeah. right? And so it's creating essentially, it's a, also one of the words that I equate within a, with innovation is momentum. It's fundamentally about creating organizational momentum for in in, in schools for living into the mission mm-hmm. and creating transformative experiences for students. That's what we're doing. That's what innovation fundamentally in my mind is all about. And so in my work, it's about creating that capacity to do that. But I don't know. What do you all think about that? Does that resonate with you? Oh, or do you think I'm missing something? No, that resonates. Um when you said build, test, learn, I thought too that part of innovation, such an important part of it is that reflection piece. I mean, we're always telling the, um, our faculty here, uh, you know, fear is a failure, or failure is a fear. Or failure is an option. Failure is an option. Although they're fear fearful. <laughs> I'm getting all tangled up. But they're <laughs> fearful of failure. Failure is an option. Um, and I think, you know, really emphasizing, like you said, the learn. It's not just about trying new things. It's okay if it doesn't work. Go back, reflect. What did we learn? And we're gaining that momentum, as you said, um, to build those transformative experiences with students. But uh, I think a lot of times that piece is missing. The learn slash to me, it means reflecting um, and growing from there and not being afraid of that. That, you know, this lesson didn't go well or this technology, the equipment, um, crashed in the middle of my lesson. I can't innovate. You know, it's all about the shiny new, like you said, the tech, but um, to some, but that's that's not all there is. So it definitely resonates. Well, I think you're right. I think it is a disposition as opposed to a skill, uh, right, or a particular yeah. tool. And um, I think the way I like to think about it, too, is the word sort of adaptation. And so that doesn't necessarily, again, mean you're adapting to the digital environment. It, it can mean I'm adapting to living in the woods, right, or whatever. And we, <laughs> we have all experienced that very very much so. And that is yeah. really sort of the focus of this podcast, too, is to think about, you know, what have we learned this past year? And I will say that all of us have innovated. And yes. sometimes that innovation has involved screens. And sometimes in the best of times, it hasn't. And it right. involved, um, you know, go outside and find five stones of different colors. And I should stop trying to make up a lesson on my feet. But something <laughs> outside um, and so um, yeah I, I, I think that that completely resonates but the word momentum is a really interesting uh-huh. one that I haven't thought much about so I'm glad you you thought you mentioned it that way from the organizational standpoint and we have certainly paid a lot of attention in our roles and I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast has as well to the ebb and flow of energy and um, 
sort of the emotional yes. ecosystem um, that has sort of plagued slash buoyed up schools and teachers in this past year. Um, and there have been months, I will say last March at this time, we were full of energy and we were pushing <laughs> forward and we were figuring out how to do it. And we were all in it together. And we were doing these weekly lunch and learns and we were having faculty share out. And it was just this incredibly high energy time, right? Yeah. And then about five months later, yeah. we're all burnt out and exhausted and trying to figure out what is the next thing. And, mm -hmm. and so anyway, paying attention to momentum, I think is an interesting thing. Um, but I do think, and I wonder what you think too about this, Tim, I think that momentum doesn't always look like high energy, right? Like I think a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of things can be happening in more of a dead, quiet, resting season. Um, That's a great point. As well, kind of under underneath the surface. Um, so anyway, what do you think about that? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I also think I love your notion of ebb and flow of energy. Mm -hmm. I think that's so spot on, particularly now. I think that's a I think that's a really important thing to consider. Um, you know, there's two other ideas that I think are important that I've been thinking a lot about. One of them is what I'll refer to as the what and the how of innovation, right? So the what is the thing we're doing, the project, you know, the, it could be creating a, a new way of thinking about teaching world history in the upper school, mm -hmm. right? That might be, they're working with a small group of teachers and we're imagining restructuring the world history course, right? Could be innovation. That's the what. The how is what's the process mm -hmm. that we're developing to do that work. And it's being really conscious of the process as much as we are of yes. the product, yes. right? And, and so when we emerge, we not only have a prototype of something we want to try in our world history course, but we also have more capacity built yeah. around how we do this. And so we do a lot of work on our team really taking inspiration from a project management process called Scrum. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Scrum. Yeah. So you should look at a book by a guy named Jeff Sutherland called Scrum. And it really came out of the software development world. It's the process by which software developers build and, and learn and build sprints. Mm -hmm. But I, I love sprint-based thinking and particularly in schools. And I love it and, and as we're thinking about how we do this work, right? And so the if you can hone that process and you can do what in Scrum they call retrospectives, which is this idea of like the end, we're going to come back and say, what did we learn about the history course? But also, what did we learn about working together that we can share with others and continue on? And that, that is key, I think, to building that innovation flywheel at school, that more and more people get better and better at both developing, taking risks and doing the retrospective. And it redefines failure because then it isn't failure, it's learning, right? And I think that's a key, key differentiator. Um, and the other thing I was going to say that I've also been finding recently is that, you know, innovation has to be what I'll call directional, meaning so often one of the things I think is problematic about innovation is it's just like, let's just run around and do stuff, right? And so it can be, you know, what people would call random acts of innovation, right? It's just kind of like things are popping up and... And to your really great point, Julie, we think that the energy, that the that the the activity is what the innovation is. But what we actually have to do is ensure that our innovation is aligned with a common vision. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think in this in this moment in particular, we should be thinking about how we have deep empathy for the journey that our families and our teachers and our students have been on over the last year. And we need to really understand that. We need to be conscious of that. And we need to honor that. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, we need to lead with vision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we need to paint a clear picture of the future that can be. And we need to be thinking about for our students. And we need to help folks progress on that journey. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think it's both end. Yep. It's, it's really thinking about deep empathy and vision-led innovation. Yes. Well, that's right, and I think that that vision is is, an, is something that excites us, right? It, it doesn't it doesn't create stress; it creates hope for the future. Is the is the idea yeah. anyway? That's right. So that's right. So exciting, yeah. exciting. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, maybe yep. move on to yours now. Yeah. So so many leaders um, have been blown away by your conceptualization of the magnetic mountain. We've used that imagery. Tom Shepard has here at St. Andrews. Um, many of the conferences I attended at NAIS, the heads referenced it. 
Um, but talk to us a little bit about that imagery and how you first came up with the magnetic mountain and, and kind of what it is for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely, Shay. So when I started at NAIS, I had spent the past 18 years working at a large pre-K through 12th grade school with 1,400 students sitting on an 800-acre campus. And one of the first things I discovered is that is not the average NAIS school, right? In fact, <laughs> the average NAIS school has 400 students, is, on a, is in a single building, is probably on a small landlocked campus inside of a neighborhood or is in a city somewhere. And so I said, I got to get to know the schools that I'm working with. You know, NAIS represents 1,800 schools. I got to get to know them. And so what I started doing was just talking with a lot of schools about their journey. And what I was particularly looking for is what I called nose down to nose up schools. Schools that three years ago had been in enrollment decline, had been seeing 10 plus percent attrition every year, were having a hard time filling the school, and there was no buzz, right? And now, three, five years later, they're on the move. There's buzz. There's more people applying. The school feels like it's going somewhere. They're, they're not feeling the existential threat that they were th feeling three to five years ago. Mm. And so I went looking for schools that had gone from that nose down to nose up. And I would ask them to tell me about their journey. And as they told me about how they got from where they were to where they are and where they want to be, I started seeing themes that emerge. And as we mentioned earlier, I started my career as a fourth grade teacher. Mm -hmm. So I think of everything as a fourth grade teacher <laughs> and how a fourth grade teacher would describe any concept to anyone. And what it started emerging for me was the theory of a journey that fundamentally progress in schools can be framed around a journey. Mm -hmm. And so I then, over time, talking with colleagues, this sort of the concept of the mountain emerged. Um, one of the key first ideas came from a book called The Other Side of Innovation, um, which really was by two Dartmouth Business School professors. And they really were talking about the down, what they call down mountain innovation, which is all about execution. And in that book, just the notion of coming down the mountain about being execution helped me stitch the rest of it together, the up mountain innovation. And so then that's where the concept came from. But I would never forget where I first thought of it. I was walking. I used to do this walk from the NAIS office in Washington, D.C. to the train station to take the train back to Baltimore. And most people would ride the subway, but I would walk the three and a half miles every day when I would leave work. <laughs> it was a beautiful walk past the White House and just, as you might imagine, just a gorgeous walk in Washington. And I was on the phone with someone, as I was, often was. I call them walk and talks. And I would walk with someone as I would do that three-mile walk. And... I was on a call with someone and that's where the sort of the concept hit me. Um, and the, the theory of the mountain is really this whole notion is based in now town, right? This mm -hmm. sort of our comfortable, what we know, what we've always been. And it's lovely. It's awesome. It's fantastic. What we have, what we do every day with kids in school is amazing. What our teachers do every day is amazing. But yet every school that I visited had both the loveliness of now town and yet at the same time, they also, when we got into a quiet room with the board or with the head or with the leadership team or with teachers, there were forces acting on their now town. Mm. There were things that were calling into question, should we stay here in this comfortable place forever? And really what I had found is that schools that were making the most progress were schools that had found in, and of them, in themselves the imperative to leave now town, the, the imperative to get beyond their current reality. And so those schools had learned how to hike, right? Mm -hmm. And I call this whole thing, I call it day hikes, which are these sort of short adventures. And then this whole concept of base camp emerged. And then the summit vision idea emerged. And then I was out there, as you know, I was out there telling and always reflecting. The thing about the mountain is what's been fascinating to me is like, it keeps changing. I call it the Zen of the mountain. Like I, like the, the metaphor changes, my ideas around it change, my concepts of a change. And, and certainly the pandemic has created that yeah. where in every school in the world was thrown out of their now town at exactly the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. And we all now have coalesced. We've all built stable base camps. We have like, you know, dining tents and we have like, everyone knows how to live in a tent and we've created like, we have these great cook stoves and we've really innovated in our base camp. Mm -hmm. But yet we look down the mountain in a longing way for what was now town. And what I always say is that they actually changed the name. It's not called, it's not now town anymore. It's now was town. 
it's, it isn't the same, right? And our calling is not necessarily just to go back. Our calling is to learn from what we've been through in the last year and to continue hiking. We are fundamentally, metaphorically mountain climbers. That's what progress looks like. And so it's not about returning. As much as we want to return to something that was before, it's about grabbing the best of and continuing to hike. So I don't know if that answers your question about, about the mountain, but it really is, it, it, it has served me well over the years, for sure. Yeah, I think, I think it, it, that, that's a perfect introduction into this for folks who haven't heard about it. And, and so maybe to kind of reframe some of these questions a little bit, Shay, I'm curious, mm -hmm. Tim, if you could now take some of those concepts that you just shared um, and talk about what they might look like for the individual teacher in the classroom, right? And so what is a day hike? Um, what, you know, samples maybe from schools you've seen, places you've been. Um, certainly we can all, I think, kind of picture what you just described as was, was <laughs> no town. longer now town, <laughs> was town. Um, but but what, what would these look like? And if I'm, if I'm an individual teacher, and my school leader, uh, as he often does, has the magnetic mountain on a you know a big PowerPoint in front of me at a faculty meeting. Um, how am I looking at that and reflecting um, as a faculty member myself about where I am on that mountain? I mean, is this can this be a micro? Can this be something we apply to the micro concrete every day in my classroom, as opposed to the larger sort of macro organizational structure and vision as a school? And if so, what would that, if you could just steal, and feel free to jump on that fourth grade. We, I'm loving the fourth grade thing. So if, if you, you know, fourth grade Tim Fish, um, <laughs> what would some of these things look like? Yeah, it's a great, it's, let's, I will transport myself back to my fourth grade yes, time classroom. machine, time machine. Please do. To my time <laughs> machine, and I will, and I'll think about what the mountain might have meant to, to 21 year old or 22 year old Tim Fish in a fourth grade classroom. And so I think a couple of things is it's absolutely the whole concept can be applied to you as a person, to you as an individual. And you can ask yourself, you know, what is my personal now town? And my teaching, I'll tell you what my now town was as a fourth grade teacher, is every day I would come in and I would get all my materials and I had this big table in the front of the room and I would lay all my stuff out and I would go to the chalkboard. And normally, and the way it worked in Fairfax is that from 8.05 or 8.10 when the kids would arrive until about 11 a.m., I had them. Like we wouldn't have specials, the younger grades had specials. So I had my kids for three straight hours in the morning. And my now town was, I would write 8.05 to 8.15, opening, 8.15 to 8.45, math, 8.45, you know, da, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. And I would, I would take that three magical hours of uninterrupted time mm -hmm. with 32 little kids, and I would break it up into immovable structures, mm -hmm. right? And that was my now town. That's where I was comfortable. That's what I did. I did it every day. I knew maybe I should experiment more, yeah. but I got into my own sort of zone on that, right? And so my day hikes were when I began thinking a little bit more about combining history and language arts. And I started thinking a little bit more about what if I did a 90 minute block and I actually took the kids outside and we actually did something. And so a day hike was an experiment, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I didn't change everything. I just merged two subjects and took the kids outside and tried to learn something, right? I got out of my comfort zone. I got out of my now town and I went out on the hill and I came back, right? And I didn't change everything and then I did it again and I got better. And then I started taking a tent with me and spending metaphorically <laughs> night out <laughs> on the mountain. And I'd be out there a little longer and I'd be trying things a little more substantive. And by the end of my fourth year of teaching, and I only, unfortunately only taught fourth grade for four years, but the end of my fourth year, that filing cabinet was jam packed <laughs> with stuff I had made. And I, and those three hours of uninterrupted time in the morning, they looked quite different yeah, yeah. than what it looked like in my first year. And I was doing things that I think I was on my way mm -hmm. to becoming a pretty good teacher. I would not suggest that I was a great teacher or even a good teacher, but I was on my way yeah. becoming a pretty good teacher. But what, what the mountain taught me was where I wanted to go. And so as we think about that, your base camp as a teacher 
is what do I fundamentally believe about teaching, about my teaching? What's my mission as a teacher? Those are what I call your base camp values. Mm -hmm. At the end of the year, if your students sat down, what would you hope that your students would say that they took away from the year in your classroom, right? Um, certainly Jay McTie and Understanding by Design would call those uh, essential understandings, right? What are those key things that students leave the classroom with? Having come, what transfer skills he talks about, what they have? But what do I believe? What do I believe my role is? What am I really trying to do? That's my base camp, right? And then my summit as a teacher is what, in order to fully express that personal vision for what it means to be the best teacher I can be, mm. my summit idea is where am I trying to go in the next two to three years? What bold ideas do I have for my own future that I'm trying to live into? Mm. And how am I gonna get there? And it's gonna make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be hard. Yeah. I might not get there, but imagine as a teacher, when you've taken that bold idea you know, one of the things we did my last year of teaching, and again, I'm not suggesting for a minute that I was a very good teacher, but I partnered with a first grade teacher and we wrote a play together oh, and we, and we had the kids write the play and we put on the play and it was a, it was a bold idea, right? It was not easy. It was really messy. Sometimes it was hard to find the time. Parents were like getting a little like where's the content coverage? You know, you know, everything that had that happened, right? That you can right. imagine it. And yet when that night came and those kids performed that play, it was like I was standing on top of a mountain, right? right? The, the sense of accomplishment, the view that I had right. of, of what learning can look like was like nothing else. It changed me just like climbing a mountain will change you. Mm -hmm. And so the question really is for a teacher to come up with in their own mind is what's my now town? Mm -hmm. What's that comfortable teaching that I fall back to that I know in my heart I need to get beyond it, mm. right? Yeah. It's good, it's not horrible, we're not doing damage to children, but we know we could do more. What are those base camp values that I really hold on to? And what's my summit vision for the next two to three years? That's how I would apply it to the fourth grade, Tim. I don't know if that helps. That is so that's helpful. That's how I would think about it. And applicable to the classroom. I'm wondering, you know, back to what we said earlier about Town, and you mentioned so many people are looking back at Town and kind of, wishing they could go back. Um, and when we when we frame it with that in mind, like what do you say to the teacher who also is like, man, I just grew more than I ever thought I could. I've, I, I'm i gonna stay right here next year. I mean, they're tired, they're weary. And you said earlier, you know, that deep empathy too, like balancing it with the deep empathy. Like how do you encourage teachers now as we reflect on this school year and we move into next school year um, to really consider these, these points that you just touched while we're weary and while we feel as educators, like we have, we've just innovated so much. Can I take a breather? You know what I mean? Yes. Like how yes. do they reflect on now town with the loss? I think that also mourning the loss of was town. Yeah. And are there benches on the journey? Benches. There I are mean, benches on I, the journey. I, I, there I, actually I use a are. bench or two on my hikes. So. I mean, I need a bench. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about just as you were saying that, Shay, and I just thought of this, is that they've turned was town into an Airbnb. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can rent it out and go visit. And, that, and you can rent it out. You can go back. You can go back for like, you know, four or five days. You can relax. You can kind of go back there. You can, right? But it's an Airbnb. You don't own it, right? Oh, like we really belong hiking. We really belong on the moving forward. But yeah, you know what? We got to go back. The other thing is we got to go back. We got to find what we really value about what it was that we love so much. What is it about that that we right. love so much? Mm -hmm. And we need to put some of that stuff in our backpack. Well, that's the case. And we need to carry it with that's us. That's right. right. It's not all like we're always abandoning it. Right. It's not. It's so. It's not to suggest that there isn't any value there. And you know, the other thing I want to make clear is I'm not advocating for hybrid teaching where no. half of your third graders are in the room and half of your third graders are on Zoom oh. and two others are God knows where. Like that's not what I'm advocating I'm glad for. you're clarifying. Nobody, yeah. nobody wants to teach that way. I'm also not that's advocating good. for sort of trying to teach second grade online. Yes. You know, what I'm, yes. So it, it's so what I'm saying, when I say not returning, yeah. I don't mean not good. returning to in-person learning, good. right? Good, thanks. Because I absolutely think it's about in-person learning. 
Same. Yep. It's about what disposition are we returning with? Mm. Yeah. Are we returning with a disposition of continuing to improve our practice? Or are we returning with a disposition of saying, I just want to do what I've always done. Yes. Right. And so does that make sense? So like, yes, yes. do I believe that teachers should be in a room with second grade children? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, of course, our campuses are built for that. Our schools are built for that. Yeah. What I'm really discussing is how do we see ourselves, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And one teacher I was talking to said, you know, I don't just want to go back to Nowtown. I want to go back to the basement of Nowtown. And I want to <laughs> lock the door. You know, like I want to, I want to be, I want, I'm, I, I'm drawn back to doing what I've always done so much. And I get it. Yeah. And yet I know that when I was breaking that schedule up in those mornings, when I was a fourth grade teacher, that wasn't best for kids. Right. That's, right. that's not how learning works. Right. And so I needed to, I needed to do more than that. And I needed to get out of that natural comfort zone. Yes, that's so that's so powerful. And I'm so thanks for just very explicitly. There's yes. a little bit of an elephant in the room, I think, when frameworks like that are shared mm -hmm. and faculty aren't exactly sure what the micro meet. What is what is the micro in there? Right. Like I see the big idea, but but what is that vision? Um, and, and I think this is where it gets tricky, um, which is to say we asked you to get micro and individual teachery. But none of us actually teach on an island, right? And we're part of systems and we're part of organizations. Um, not just our school institution, which is important, figuring out sort of what the vision of your school institution is, but even larger than that, we live in a world, right? We live in a country, we live in a region, we live in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and within all of these different sort of ecologies or, or systems, there are lots of questions right now around equity and around access. Um, and around what is best practice, right? And, and all of these sort of sociocultural underpinnings and overpinnings all are, are all around us and we operate within them. So I guess the next question then <laughs> is how, how do I as an individual teacher then operate? Because I think your example was so easy for us to apply as teachers, right? Like I can think individually about my, te my teaching, how to move forward into my essentially, when I was an education professor, you know, we always did education philosophy statements. So I can go back to my ed philosophy statement and I can say, here are the six things that really matter to me that in, a, in a fourth grade classroom and I can enact those in my classroom. But I'm operating with colleagues in a school, with school leaders, in a, in a state, in a country, in a world. How do we work among all of those layers, right? And and how can we think about you know either this this magnetic mountain or maybe maybe it's another framework or another idea you have, um, so that we can kind of do both the the you know internal individual, but also think about our participation in a larger sort of system. It's a great question. You know, I think it also comes. I think where the mountain also applies is to recognize that Nowtown has and baked into it by its very nature it's got a whole lot of bias yeah it's got a it's got a whole lot of privilege yeah. baked into it it just is it just is mm -hmm. right it's it, it's the nature of it and that one of the things that when we allow ourselves to just stay there in an unreflected state mm -hmm. we will naturally mm -hmm. i think operate on that bias and we will operate from a white really a white privileged perspective, I think. And we have to recognize that and be willing to put ourselves out. That's part of getting out, yeah. right? Yeah. That's part of putting ourselves in an uncomfortable situation. And clearly this past year certainly has done that. And that's what I mean when I say we're called to continue to be in that, in that state, yeah. right? Yeah. We're called to always be sort of growing and stretching and trying to move ourselves forward. Um, certainly we need time to, re to relax. We need some time to just sort of not have as much change as we've had. You know, the other thing for me that I think is I've been reflecting on this a bit <clears throat> that I think has been really difficult about the last year is that, yes, you're a hundred percent right. You know, we absolutely, Julie, we have innovated more in the last year than we ever have probably ever in education. Right. We, but that, has been re reactive innovation. Mm, that's right. Great point. Right? It's not, we haven't been in control of the forces that are acting on us and we've had to respond. And where I think we need to go after we relax a little bit and, and be empathetic to the journey, the difficult journey all of our colleagues have been on, mm -hmm. 
is we want to start moving to proactive innovation. Yeah. We want to start moving to, to making progress toward our vision and the school we want to be, right? And so I think they're very different in the way that they feel, right? Because there's a different level of exhaustion when you're constantly reacting so, yes, as opposed to um, as opposed to when you're proactively leading, so, right? Yes. So I just think I said we need to be conscious of that and give the time and be honest about it and then also continue to try to move forward. That's such a great point. I've, I've never thought of it that way. And even as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, you know, when I'm proactively trying to innovate, I even bring with it a different type of energy. I'm energized in a different way. So the, the motivation is different. You have agency. Like it is, yes. I want to do this thing and I'm going to do this yes. thing versus yes. the sense of I'm out of control. It's happening to yes. me. I have to still keep somehow making it happen. Yeah. I don't know when it's going to hit me next, right? That's been yeah. a lot of it is the sense of what's the next thing? I don't know. Right. Know the the other shoe's going to drop. Right. Or, so this, yeah, kind of mind blown just then in that and, and really thinking through even personally what I've feel like as I do as I try to empathize with our classroom teachers in this last year and as you were talking you know thinking man in my own in my own journey it is so very different when it's reactive versus proactive what a great point such a great point yeah yeah you know the other thing I for me that I think is is something to be to be a little conscious of is like it, it absolutely has a different kind of energy, a different kind of feel, a different kind of outcome. That sense of agency, I think that you just said, I think Julie or Shea is is so key and important to recognize. Um, you know, and and it just it I think it's something where um, what I have seen from a lot of folks that are sort of taking advantage of this moment is that um, where I've seen the most energy and excitement. Um, emerging from the chaos that has been the last year has been when teachers have figured out ways to partner more deeply with their students mm. and in reimagining what the instructional experience can look like. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I would, I'd go right back, not only teacher agency, but to student, student agency. agency. Student right. agency, yes. And when we can give that, when we give more agency, I think we find that even in these really challenging times, the students can be true partners in that design. And that's just counterintuitive. It's just not how we yeah. typically think about things, but it's something that I think can be incredibly powerful. Well, that's right. Um, I mean, teachers aren't the only ones who have had a sense of loss of agency in the past year, right? We all right. have that's our right. students, our parents, our communities. Well, okay, so then maybe we're kind of starting to, to de you know, go down the hill of our mountain and get closer <laughs> to the end here. Well, I don't know if we ever want to go down. Okay, we're going up. We're going up. <laughs> up, 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 up. Well, there is an element of down mountain. We can talk all about oh, that later. Oh, my gosh, there is, this there is metaphor. I love it. Love it. So, so then can you give us some more examples of what that looks like? When you say centering the student, right, agents, giving students agency, um, can you give us some concrete examples of schools? You work with so many school leaders and schools around the around the country, leading schools, exciting schools. So, for for faculty that are listening, for teachers that are listening, you know, any any grade level, K twelve, pre K twelve, what have you seen that that has you know that could maybe come out of this crisis as as sort of a practice or a, a way beyond the abstract, right? Which we I think you're right about the agency and the student centeredness. Um, what maybe it's a tool, maybe it's an approach, a pedagogy. Um, what have you seen? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll tell you another story. I was talking with a teacher recently, um, going back to sort of now we'll sort of jump into like an upper school example. Cool. And um, in this example, this was actually a history teacher who who was teaching world history or is teaching world history. And this is a very academic teacher, right? Mm -hmm. PhD yes. in in. Um, the African-American experience, mm -hmm. um, super thoughtful, Civil War, um, real scholar on the Civil mm -hmm. War. Um, and also, also a teacher, this is a teacher I happen to know well, also in his classroom, his physical space, over time he has created a, a sense of comfort and approachability that is like nothing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Students love hanging out in that space, they love being in that space. And his classroom environment is is almost just like a conversation. It's it's phenomenally interesting and cool. And 
And so I was talking with this teacher about how he progressed in a largely online space for the first several months of, certainly last several months of last year, and then the first several months of this year. And he said that it quickly became apparent to him that what he had in that physical space, he came to the realization that it had fundamentally been about him, Mm. right? That he loved it, but he was the, he was holding court. He was leading the conversation. He was guiding it in this really interesting way. And students, yes, they enjoyed it and they were getting a lot out of it. But he said, fundamentally, you know, it was really about me. It was about my design. It was about my progress going forward. And he said, I decided to use this opportunity to give them back this way. This I'm going to invite them into the design of what we're going to do. Cool. And so what he ended up doing was he decided that in his world history course, he was going to abandon the concept of chronology. He said, I'm just not going to march through time. Instead, I'm going to take certain periods and we're going to study them deeply. And the students and I are going to do original historical research on something that's never really been studied that much. And we're going to take a a small little unique topic and we're going to really study a very deep question around a particular period in history. And that particular period of history will have connections and threads that can come all the way through. So one of them that they looked at was the concept of political friction. And how's political friction work through history and through world history and looked at different periods of time and just took that on. And then the students would each like read and present and create and find information and write very academic, you know, papers, but they were in charge of what they were going to study and how it was going to work. And he said, he said, it completely changed not only what it was like to teach in a zoom based universe, Mm. But he said, I'll never go back to That's teaching right. chronology, yeah. right? And so the, the premise there was there are a couple of things I just want to call out. One is it was really important for him to have deep content knowledge mm-hmm. yes. because for him to understand how history really works and to see it on that level, he had to be a true academic, yeah. right? And yet he also had to come to the realization that it wasn't about him, mm-hmm that he knew so much that he wanted to tell people, but he also had to say, I want to get beyond that. I want it to be about them. Mm -hmm. And so he had to put it back. He had to get out of the way of their progress. And that was a, that was something he had to discover. And then he had to take that, get really vulnerable and design something incredibly new that could easily fail. Right. So, so it isn't easy. Right. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that you don't need content knowledge, but it's what do we do with the content knowledge, right? Well, and that I think is something that should be. So that's, that's another example of a, of a teacher's journey that I just found so inspiring, um, not only because of the outcome that he created, but because of his personal vulnerability to notice that it wasn't working, to ask himself hard questions, to come to a deep personal realization, and then to design with that realization in mind. So I just found that, I just found that story to be so, so inspiring. Well, thank you for that, Tim. And I, I also want to point out that that is a great example of what you described earlier about it, about it being both content and process, right? And so he went from a chronological approach to a thematic um, based approach, which is also my favorite in history. I can, I can really bite into a chunky, juicy theme and get into history. But if we're just talking through a chronology of events, um, I, my mind, you know, goes to lunch or dinner or whatever. Um, but then the how, right? The how right. being the piece you're describing of having students go deep and do their own original research and produce that and share that with each other. And I also want to point out that that involved zero tech necessarily zero tech mediated innovation, right? That is absolutely a curricular innovation. And um, it's the kind of thing that I think um, is really interesting that it that it emerged during this past year, right? Because some might, that, that could very well be an innovation that happened in 2016 too, right? Like, but it's interesting that in some way it was a rupture. There was a disruption. There was something that made us pause, consider, and in some ways respond and mm-hmm. pay attention to our kids in ways that when we're sort of just moving, it's the same for me in my own practice as well. When we're just sort of moving yes. on this busy treadmill, we so just fast. keep kind of reproducing what's been produced yes. um, and it's going okay. But this whole disruption, 
disruption, I think, is is it, the, the gift of it is exactly what you described, this moment of stoppage and like, let me look and let me respond and let me pay attention to my students in a new way. Um, but what a great example. I, I think I think our teachers uh, would, would love to hear about that and would love for that to be an example. It actually reminds me quite a bit of an interview we did with Darren Meyer, mm-hmm. one of our history teachers, about reconceptualizing um, his U.S. history class into more of an American studies class and, and having students do videos where they were sort of doing tourism videos for different cities. And again, that also happened during this year. And, and again, it wasn't necessarily the tech, although he did involve, his did involve video, but um, it was more about this like, wait, what are we studying? What are we doing? What's the level of student engagement and why and how can we increase it? Um, and so often in my practice with middle and upper school teachers, it's about themes. It's about big, mm-hmm. juicy, meaty. Kids are curious. We're humans. Humans are curious. We are very interested in right. big ideas, and we're very interested in contributing to this discourse and to this discipline. And being active in our learning. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, great example. And and as you were talking, Tim, too, it, it keeps coming back for me to what we were talking about earlier, you know, the disposition, like that teacher that you described. Um, for him to take the time and really, like you said, be vulnerable and reflect. Like, I think for educators to seize this time in history and really um, reflect, and if the magnetic mountain imagery helps, I mean, for me, I've taken all these notes about, yes, base camp. Think about, like, your mission as a teacher. What's your summit? Um, But going into, you know, the last quarter, this summer, really reflecting on those things and deciding, what is is the disposition I'm going to come back with? Um, Because it takes, for me, that what I'm hearing in all these stories is a lot of vulnerability and reflection and slow down. Like, Julie, you said, we're on this fast-paced treadmill. I know I am every day. Pack, pack, pack. Let me get things done. Let me do, do, do and produce. But to slow down and really reflect, I think, is what, what we... We need right now, too. And I think a lot, too, about how can we as school systems support that yes, kind of reflection. That reflection. Make time. I mean, the point, the thing is, it, it is privilege. Time is a privilege, right? right. And it is a privilege yes. that so often our faculty and our teachers don't feel the space and the room for. I mean, it's Very actually true. why I went from being an English teacher to grad school, literally, was like... I have so many ideas, but I have no time to think about them, right? I have so much data (laughs) gathered from my lived reality with sixth graders and ninth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders. I need time. And so it makes me think a lot about how we in our role can create opportunities for our faculty to have that space and that that privilege of, okay, what has worked? What hasn't worked? It makes me think of, you know, we tell our pre-service teachers to have a reflection journal. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, right. Like really first year (laughs) teaching, you're going to sit down after every lesson and write a little dear diary. I mean, I really tried. I really tried. And I didn't have kids. And I was 21 and had a lot of energy or whatever, right? And right. even I did not do my reflection journal. So yeah. um, I think that's something I think a lot about. It's really easy, I think, for us uh, to think, okay, faculty, like time to reflect. Teachers, innovate, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. go. Um, but that 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 is a piece of it as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tim, as we um, close out, we have some questions we ask all of our guests. And so we're going to invite you to go down memory lane a little bit. We'd like to know um, about your favorite teacher. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Wow. <laughs> so many That's time a great question. Time machine. All the time machines. That's a great question. You know, I think, um, I think I'd have to say that, um, my favorite teacher, I actually went to an all boys Catholic high school where at boarding school and I lived on campus. And, um, and I think, and during that time, super formative years for me, um, I had this history teacher actually, back to mm-hmm. Julian Shea, that back to that th- thread of history, yeah. Father Shea. And he, Father Shea, there you go, Shea. <laughs> Great name. And, and, uh, and he, um, he just had this really great way of connecting big ideas for me. But what was also really interesting is he was also um, someone that we called our, our spiritual director. So he was like, I met with him every two weeks and we would just go for a walk and we would just like talk about life and talk about relationships. And I think that what was so powerful in that is that he sort of took an interest through that role, took an interest in me as an individual mm-hmm which which had so much of a powerful impact on my life and it connected as a teacher as well right like i i sort of ha- i just had this great blessing of having him multiple times as a teacher and also 
having a three-year or four-year relationship with him as my spiritual director. And I think that that was incredibly transformative for me. And it's what I see so often in our teachers, mm-hmm. you know, that it's so much more with our teachers. It goes beyond the content. It goes beyond the class. It goes to the messiness yes, of really right. climbing into kids' lives mm-hmm. and being present with them and helping them take their next step, whatever that may be. And so I'd have to say that he had the greatest impact as a teacher on my life because of that, I think, relationship mm-hmm. that was built. Wow. Shay, this is becoming a theme. We have, Tim, we've asked every single person mm-hmm. this exact question that we've interviewed. And I, I think probably everyone, maybe yeah. we're, at, we're at 100%, it, the, the center has not been... And they did this amazing curricular design where I really, it's always about, they saw me, they took an interest in me, there was a relationship, they centered, um, what a beautiful way you just put it, um, the, the, the messiness of climbing into students' lives. I'm going to like frame that, put that up on the wall because yes. that is that is what it's about. And I think those people like Shay and I in positions that are so focused on instruction and curriculum, <laughs> yeah. it's good to remember that that is often not what kids take away from yeah. from a right. relationship with the teacher. That's right. That's the work. Yes. And um, and you know, you know, one of the great regrets I have is that I never told him that. Oh. Um, and and he passed away several years ago. Sorry. And yeah. you know, and I think too often when we all answer that question, who was the teacher who had the greatest impact? You know, in this great age of technology and Facebook. We can probably find them, (laughs) you know, go let them know and let them know that their name came to, because, you know, every one of the teachers listening to this podcast, I can guarantee you that there are students out there who list them, Yes, that their name comes up. I'm sure the two of you, your name comes up when students think of their favorite teacher and man, what would it mean to get a letter or a phone call or a text or a tweet or something that says you changed my life? Mm. Um, So just, you know, calling that out. Yeah. Such a good idea. Okay. Everyone, that's our homework. All of us after this podcast. (laughs) I love that homework. Don't, don't walk, run to your Facebook or (laughs) email or find that teacher. Find that teacher. It's great. That's great. Well, thank you. Last question of the day. It's a meaty question. If you were the wizard of the world and could ensure that every teacher read a book, the same book, um, and I don't know, maybe ensured that there was some sort of internalization of the book, implementation of ideas into the practice of teaching. I don't know. What would what would that book? What, what, it's, an, it's an impossible question, but but what would that? <laughs> wow, book be? that's another great question. I'm so glad you're asking this of everyone. Um, the first book that comes to mind for me um, is a book called An Ethic of Excellence by Ron Berger. Um, I don't know if you know it. It's a that short book. It just came up from another interview. Did it? Um, okay, no yes. way. A recent in- someone else. I can't remember. I'm going to say the wrong one. If I, It's between two of them. One of the two. One of our recently. recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's cool. And I have but never read it. An Ethic of Excellence, it's such a great book. And it, it really speaks. It, it, the subtitle is Creating a Culture of Craftsmanship. Students and this concept that Berger talks about of craftsmanship, he is he is one of my. I don't know him personally, but he's mm-hmm. somebody that I always have admired. He is a true leader in the experiential education movement, nice. and I think um, he, for me, that is it, the essence of what quality can look like with students. Right, this notion of what does excellence, what can excellence be, and he would equate excellence with craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. And I just think you just got to dig in. It just, it blew my hair back in terms of my own thinking. I mean, Shay, we've got, this is the second person in her. I will have to order that one. This summer, (laughs) Shay and I have a reading club. And faculty, join us. Teachers, join us. Yes. Um, Thank you so much. It has just been such a delight uh, to pick your brain. And um, I know that. Next time Tom Shepard puts up the Magnetic Mountain, I'm going to have a whole new level of appreciation. Yes, and <laughs> for, lots for of that. like micro application for the classroom teacher. This was great, Tim. Yes, Thank you yes. so much for your time today and joining us. This has been oh, awesome. absolutely. And I would just invite the two of you and anyone else to make the mountain your own, change yeah. it, Ooh, uh, edit it. it, you know, adapt it. it. It's yeah. meant to be tweaked. That's it's cool. meant to morph over time. Yeah. So it's been such a joy spending time with you. 
Um, just so grateful for what you're doing. So grateful for the work you've done with students this year. And so grateful for all of the work that every teacher who's listening to this yes. has done during this incredible year. It has been like no other. Um, and the courage and resilience and creativity that I've seen has been so inspiring. So just want to say thank you. Well, thanks, Tim. And, you know, in an earlier version, the podcast title was not Inspire and Innovate. It was Thanks for All You Do. Uh, <laughs> so uh, shout out to Toby Lowe for yeah. that uh, title. So agreed. Thank you, teachers, uh, for this year and um, for all of the ways that you have already wow. made the mountain your own. Yeah. And may we all continue to climb to the summit and and, and think about uh, what that means for all of us. So. Okay, great. Take um, care, both of you. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Great to meet you. Hey, all you K-12 teachers out there. Thanks for all you do. Now get out there and try some stuff.